Hi, I'm Lisa Morton, founder of Roland Dransfield PR. Welcome to We Built This City. With this podcast, I wanted to shine a light on the people who have put the heart into modern Manchester. You can build a city with bricks and mortar, but it's the people that make Manchester great. People like my guest, broadcaster Karen Gabay. I'm interested in them not just because they're a star, I'm interested in kind of what makes them tick. One thing I wasn't expecting when I started We Built This City was the pulling together of what I feel is a tapestry of Manchester history in all these people. And I feel like we've created this huge patchwork blanket made of these podcast episodes. And when I interviewed Karen, it really brought that home. So Karen has been providing platforms for the stories you don't usually hear for nearly three decades on her programme, The People, on BBC Radio Manchester. On top of that, she's a TV and radio producer, and she's produced her own arts-funded films about Manchester culture and music. She describes herself as an oral historian, and she's passionate about capturing the stories you don't usually hear from people you don't usually hear from. Think of it like this. Manchester has a musical history we all know, from the Smiths to Oasis and beyond, and we're really proud of it. But there are a load of other stories that we don't always hear. Karen Gabay seeks them out, and I challenge you to get through this interview without your chin hitting the floor at the reach this woman has got in the music industry. Karen, thank you for being my guest on We Built This City. Thank you, Lisa, and hello. I'm not sure that just one podcast is going to do you justice um, in actual facts and people will know you and your voice from presenting the people on BBC Radio Manchester but you've had an incredibly diverse career, uh, accomplished career that our listeners may not be aware of so I'm going to list some of those now. Um, TV producer, exhibition and workshop curator, filmmaker, freelance lecturer and oral historian and you've won an armful of awards for your work. I'm sure I've missed some things out there and I've got no idea how you fit it all in, but hopefully on this podcast we'll find out now. You've also described yourself as a tastemaker and cultural commentator. Tell me what that means for you. Uh-huh. So tastemakers, I don't know if they do exist now. I don't know if they exist in the same way, but I know lots of kind of tastemakers and that is... Um, Tastemaker is somebody who's passionate about a new track that comes out or that's about to come out and you're really good at spotting what is going to be either a hit or an artist that's going to make it big or someone that's going to break through because they've got something special. So even if an artist doesn't break through, you know that something about what they've created is going to bode well for them in the future. I've always done that. I'm quite passionate about music. I am an advocate for certain people who I come across who I think have got something special and I do kind of um what's the word is I will kind of bombard people (laughs) with (laughs) musical rights that are coming up that I feel people should listen to and so that means in the music industry and it's gone beyond that as well for me it's gone through to theatre and film people will come to me and say this is a track will you listen to it? Because also they know that if you don't like it, that there's maybe there's something wrong with it, something, there's an aspect of it. But also they know that if you lead, because even if you don't have tons and tons of followers, it's the quality of the fact that you're good at pulling out what why people might like it, that people will listen and it can elevate an artist um, or it can elevate a play. Uh, it can bring attention to that. And that's what a tastemaker is. 
and just to give you an example, you know, as a tastemaker, for a variety of artists, Amy Winehouse is one. Sometimes people are celebrated different because everybody knew they were going to make it, but when I came across Amy, people didn't think she was going to make it, didn't take her, you know, some people didn't take her seriously. There's another artist who I got signed who's called Shauna Scoffrey, who I spotted him at the very early kind of stages and he went on to be the Lion King and right. also has got you know it's got tracks that you know whenever you're out you'll it's always kind of the number one tracks that people want to listen to and also he's got you know a second wind again a major recording career because every time you say to somebody you know this guy's got an amazing voice people no matter what kind of music they like often go ah okay so that's the tastemaker side of things and why do you think you're so good at that? Uh, I think in terms of music, I would always say that um, there were key things in terms of music. Uh, one was that I grew up in a household where, so there was my mum and dad. My mum was much younger than my dad, but, um, well, 11 years younger, but she was a young mum. So she was very much in, you know, was always listening to, you know, like the music that was kind of current and into the fashion. But my dad had a a vast music taste he was a sound system dj by night but he also liked all kinds of music and he didn't believe that black music should be defined but also thought that black music was important but he wasn't also somebody was going you know he shouldn't listen to a white artist so he loved everybody um that came along and every time something new came along he would listen to it and if we liked something as kids he wouldn't dismiss it he'd kind of listen to it and he loved live music as well he always said you know, somebody's going to deliver beyond a record if you see them live. So you should never write somebody off or never judge someone. And live next door to a family who also likes the music. And then I had these cousins who, most of my cousins in London, uh, we kind of all interacted in what we liked. And my uncle there was a musician and he wanted us to be, to, to love music. So me and one of my younger cousins in particular, my younger cousin was very dramatic and interacting and I liked music. So he really wanted us to stay in that. So he used to take us to his studio and we re- would record, well, we'd rehearse with him mm. and uh, it gave us an instrument. It always encouraged us. And he, he said, you know, my cousin should go to Anna Cher, which he did, which Anna Cher's a you know, the drama school and we're in the studio. What was interesting about that, he, he played reggae uh, a lot of the time, but again, he would always buy records and give them as a gift to me and say, this is important. So it'd be like Stevie Wonder or Bunny Whaler or Jazz. Um, and I only found out about 10 years ago that the band that we were rehearsing in was a resident band for one of London's key nightclubs and he'd be the resident band for major music artists. And then aside from that, I was very single-minded that I also had an additional like of music that was nothing like any of them liked. So I liked indie music and I liked rock because my dad had always said you can listen, not you can listen, but you should listen to rock. But I really liked it and so... I liked Echo and the Bunnymen, you know, I liked all of those things. I went to school where our teachers well said, you know, classical music is for everyone. So I liked all of those things. So people have said to me now, we were studied as well, you were always quite single-minded and you'd always say, I don't understand why you're black and you think that you shouldn't listen to indie music or shouldn't listen to David Bowie or, you know, uh, 
I was just very kind of single-minded in that this is what I like you know so (laughs) that's literally listening to that it's so similar to my upbringing around music so my uncle was a jazz musician and my dad was my whole family was musical my grandma played everything including the spoons I mean everything she sang and my dad was a guitarist and so we all used to go to my grandma's house and do shows and we could all play something there were instruments everywhere and we'd sing and dance and stuff and everyone made my cousins were in the choir but when I was about six my dad gave me a little um you know like a box it's like a record player bush in a, in a box with a lid on it me in too my, yeah, yeah. And I listened to, I grew up listening to black music, so I listened to um, Carmen McRae, Ella Fitzgerald, Billie Holiday, um, John Coltrane, and then rock and roll, so the Beatles, I knew every single word to the Beatles, and then I loved indie, so, but my dad was like, you can like, and lots of classical music, Um, but my dad was like, when I got into indie, he was was one of those that sit in front of the top of the pops and go, you can't hear a bloody word the same. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's funny, isn't it, because so many people say they got my granddad bought also a little record player and he bought me a keyboard and I also had a guitar and it's funny that so many people say that little record player when I speak to them now that made such a difference but it's funny isn't it what you say about the top of the pops because my mum liked everything that I, a lot of the stuff that me and my sisters liked you know but but she hated Prince she still hates Prince to this day so that was the thing that used to that was the person that used to send her over the edge and um because she couldn't stand him at all, you know. And some of my other th- people that I liked, if I liked them, my mum would also put them up on the wall. This is like, people who've got young mums kind of understand this. <laughs> but Prince was like, no, 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 no. And the only time she ever had sympathy for me was when he died. It's like my grandma didn't like Bob Marley from your strict Jamaican, didn't like Bob Marley. When he died, it was a whole different story, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Oh, that's such a great! I love that. And and by the one, while we're talking about Prince, Sarah Collins, who, um, as I know, is your friend, and you worked for a very long time at Radio Manchester together. She was on We Built a City, and she said to me, "Ask um, Karen about Prince." <laughs> Prince is uh, somebody that I kind of absolutely adore and many people who say they like Prince say that they're always kind of the odd one out at the time of liking Prince they often went to the gigs on their own and people were like what's all that about but I absolutely adored him and uh, I've had a few instances kind of like with Prince but a couple that I share with you is one um, time I a friend of mine at a record company who also was a musician knew that I liked Prince so he invited me to a it was like a showcase, a private showcase for Prince. And I took my friend, um, who was the person who got me into TV. And what was really funny was Prince played guitar right next to us where we were sat in our seats. So he comes and the thing that we both did at the same time without thinking was we checked the height of his shoes. <laughs> we scanned him to the top. We checked his hair and the kind of his hair we did. He's like played to all these people and there's Clive Davis there and we're like, you know, <laughs> and he didn't flinch. And it was like, that's kind of, you know, as he'd gone, that was the thing that we'd both checked out. Um, but I also, um, I became friends with kind of people who knew him. And uh, so I started to, I, I realised that before he came to Manchester on those last gigs, two years before, I don't know, I just was like, I'm sure he's going to do a tour. I get this. I mean, I get a bit obsessed. I'm sure he's going to do a tour. I'm sure he's due to do a tour. So I started a Prince watch. 
And um, uh, <laughs> he went on for ages. And I used to go on the radio going, Prince is coming if you're a Prince fan. Uh, and what happened was, well, he actually did come to Manchester. And I made half of the Radio Manchester newsroom and beyond and people worked with Tully. I made them go. This is what I mean about being really... <laughs> I was like, you know, it's like a legend comes to town and why are you going to say that you're not going to go? And part of it was because uh, well, there was one time we came and the tickets were really expensive. And I realised that sometimes you just don't go to see these great artists because you think mm-hmm. it's too much. But then, you know, it's kind of once in a lifetime as people kind of, you know, as people pass away. Mm-hmm. So I really made it. I made people like ring up <laughs> when the eve- I made one friend. The tickets were sold out and I made her stay in the office and get a ticket. And she got the last one. <laughs> anyway, it was fantastic because we all ended up going and uh, it was the last gig, wasn't it? It was the last gig. So yeah. nobody's upset with me about it. Um, and uh, <laughs> yeah. But it was so funny with the Prince Watch to go back to it because um, I contacted Prince's people and asked them for an exclusive of, the, of his record and he gave it to me. And now... I am friends with his cousin, with the band. Um, I went to Minneapolis because um, my friend uh, Kirsty runs, uh, uh, you know, founded the first Prince conference. But I uh, went to Minneapolis. Prince's band let me sit in through the rehearsals. That's just amazing. kind of, it's just like kind of lots of them. It's just amazing. So, you know, I'm part of the Purple family now. That's incredible. And you know what? That stuff happens if you make it happen, doesn't it? If you create those opportunities, that's actually incredible. I I think people want to be appreciated. And sometimes we think because people are well known and famous that they don't want to be appreciated, but they Mm. do. And you really appreciate Prince. (laughs) (laughs) As you can tell. So your granddad was the first black grocer in Manchester and he had a shop on Upper Brook Street, didn't he? Yes, he did, yeah. Do you, have you got any memories of that? And I mean, the picture of, you, of your granddad on Twitter as well is just amazing if anyone gets a chance to have a look at that. But I mean, what a smart guy. Was he, what was he like? He was a bit of a character, my granddad. Um, he was really well known. Um, so most of my family live in London so, and I was actually born in London and, um, you know, people would often say, you know, his name and people say, oh, they remembered him from Jamaica being a businessman in Jamaica and selling food. So people remembered him, but I do remember him in the Manchester shop because he loved children and he was also just a very kind of like charming guy. So he had this shop. I suppose if you're a kid and your granddad's got sell sweets and he'd make them up in cones and things like that. So and he'd sometimes just throw a party if you ad hoc. But he made Vimto lollies for the kids. So he knew that kids, that what, what they liked and they didn't have much money. So he made homemade ice lollies from Vimto and the kids would come in and get those. So I always remember him doing those little things and... Um, when I made the film about Moss Eye and Hume, I went to the Sikh temple and what was lovely was, you know, you think you've got a memory, kind of, is it right? And I said, you know, I remembered just, I just remember the inside of the shop, kind of, that was it, just like little things. But they said, no, we, where you said the shop was is exactly right. Your granddad in, inspired us to have shops because we thought he can do it and he got on with people. So they were really welcoming because, you know, they just remembered him. But he was funny. He um, 
He was always like really encouraging, very, very funny. Uh, you know, I said that my cousins always thought kind of like they were a star. He was like very charismatic. He was like, you know, I, I know kind of a look good as you can tell in that kind of picture. <laughs> yeah. And um, he, uh, when he was 70, this shows you what kind of person he was. He, he came round um, to our house and he said, and he did it to everyone. And he said, right, I'm stop, stopping driving now. That's it, 70, giving up driving. So everyone's a bit like, kind of like, why? There's nothing wrong with you. Well, that's it, I'm giving up driving. So everyone went, okay. And the next day he came round on a motorbike. <laughs> and he said, I've sold my car, I've got a motorbike. We were just like... <laughs> 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 oh my god I like his style <laughs> <laughs> so that's the kind of like person that he that he was he he was just very encouraging to everyone I know my my cousins um who were older than me always said that they he did a lot for them like he bought my cousin Byron he got his first car so they got a lot of things from me you know it's like he was always like kind of like here you uh, go off and and do your thing and so he was very much kind of uh, not constrained by situational circumstances. He didn't talk about much about coming in the war, so we didn't realise till he died that he'd, he'd come here earlier. Even though we knew he'd come in the war, we didn't realise he'd come here as early as 1940. And then he went back to Jamaica and came back with my auntie in 1952. Uh, but um, he was, I think for a lot of people... They always talked about him because he was a, a businessman, because he talked about business. So even though he was a shopkeeper, he was interested mm. in business. So I yeah. think for a lot of people, they they always found that quite admirable. Mm, definitely. And do you feel that he was very um, central to kind of the values and the, and the personality that you grew up with, I suppose? Was, was he a big influence on your life as a young person? I think he was. A, he was somebody that he always liked to go and sit and chat to and talk to and I just remember you know when a past exam sometimes you know in black families as well you know generally it's like oh it's you've you've passed but it's not good enough it was always you know there's a higher bar but he was mm. always like oh you've not told me that you've done this and it's great and you know we'd always go here's a reward for doing it but I know what's interesting is that my cousins who are here uh, miss him really miss him we all kind of really miss him because of his sense of humor more mm. than anything you know he was somebody who wasn't defined by age in terms of of how he operated he liked to travel and that was one thing he always talked about he'd go to Italy and he'd go to places so he'd always say even at the time I think I wasn't into traveling a lot he'd always go but you should travel mm. and uh, I know like my cousins you know traveled and but we miss his sense of humor you know he's been gone for quite some time but you know one of my cousins in particular is always sending pictures of him because we just miss that sense of humor mm. in that you know, and the fact of somebody was always very positive, actually, was a positive person. My grandma was the same. I wasn't allowed to call her grandma or anything because my mum's mum and dad lived in Bahrain and my mum had lived there since she was, so she was about 11. And uh, we had to call them May and Jim because I didn't know, they, they didn't think they were old enough to be grandparents. And they were always like so cool and funny. And my grandma literally had a, had a heart attack, bless her ballroom dancing and she went out the way she can't yeah she's she was so she was a massive part of our lives really and I miss you know miss grandparents very much so um just going back to kind of growing up in you were in Stratford and Longsight weren't you when you were were small is that where you what was it like growing up um as as a you know a young girl of color at that time in, in the community do you feel things were different for you can you have any memories of that at the time uh 
Yeah, I mean, I grew up in Longsight, which I really enjoyed. I mean, I lived a bit of a double, I call it a double life, really, because I had one set of cousins in Manchester. The reason we came to Manchester was um, my granddad, who I'm talking about, was my dad's dad. My dad was the only mm-hmm. child. And my mum was one of ten, and um, three or four of her sisters and her, her parents were in London. And she wanted to come to Manchester because she felt people were too much in her business. So, yeah. so, and my <laughs> granddad had a shop, so she wanted to come and live with him. So that's why we were in Manchester. So I had a real contrast though, because my family in London couldn't get over the fact we'd moved to Manchester. So we always mm. had to go back, me, particularly my um, sister that follows me. So we spent a lot of the holidays we didn't spend in Manchester mm-hmm. unless we brought cousins back. We spent them in London. And so we were really able to see the contrast between what it was like to be a black girl in London to mm. being one in Manchester. So that was something that was always there, even in terms of like culturally, you know. But in Manchester, in Longsight, it was interesting because we were a black family that moved into the street. And six months after we moved in, another black family moved next door. So you can imagine. And the two mothers, my mum and my, my aunties are called there, were nurses. So when we first moved in, the dominant thing we always remembered was there's a neighbour across the road and, you know, everyone was friendly, so it wasn't that, but this particular neighbour would always say every time one of our mums went to work, have they gone home? We used to say, where have gone to work? And every time she'd always say, have they gone home? Like, have they gone back to the Caribbean? Be like, No. And uh, so we and so we'd always see because the the curtains would always twitch and you know that always was funny and then I'll never forget that obviously this happens for nurses wherever an accident happens well you don't call the ambulance you've got a nurse not only got one you've got two across the road <laughs> so that stopped when you know an accident happened I think with the kids and it happened more than once because of course they could go to these nurses and it was kind of it was a godsend for them actually so. That's yeah. changed. And, and then on the street, you know, it was really nice. You know, my ne- there was a neighbour at the end of the road and she... Because, you know, there's a thing that sometimes not talked about as well. Black families have also sometimes, because of that racism, the adults were more are really resistant because they're just really worried about, you know, the racism the kid's going to have. But there was a lady at the end of the road and she used to insist to my parents, look, I want to learn how to do the girl's hair. I want to be taught how to came. I want to, you know, I want to be able to look after them as well as the next door neighbour. I want to be able to do that. And uh, they did actually kind of give in. And that's what happened. And I know my dad stayed friends with Margaret and her kids till the day, like Margaret died until the day he was friends with the kids till the day he died, you know, because Mm -hmm. I think he always just really kind of appreciated that. So I didn't have racism at the school. I always say had a brilliant headmistress and teachers who just were like I'm you don't judge people because of how poor they are or where they come from so in long sight that was fine but Stretford I have to admit I just didn't like it it was such really? a shock because it was so it wasn't multicultural it felt so different you know there there was just weren't many black families that you know and but it was more the school it wasn't the neighbours or anything they were just really nice but it felt like suburbia and then I went mm. to a school and there was like five people of colour in the school so I'd gone to Wally Range first and had to leave and then go to Stretford Grammar and um, it was just so so different mm. the teachers or anybody weren't 
most of them weren't kind of like racist at all or encouraging but it was just a shock to be in a school of so many girls and there's just nobody there's just not that mix two people of mixed heritage um asian of mixed heritage and it, and everyone you know we're all kind of like friends but it was just uh yeah, it was just really kind of different and so kind of not what I was used to. And then if you say, if I say compare it as well with London growing up, you just didn't have schools where, well, I didn't know where you'd have schools where it was just four or five people. So I just really kind of just didn't like it. Mm. I know it's tough that and they're really, they're really important years, aren't they, as well, if you're not happy at secondary school as well. But you obviously did really well then. You, you went off to um, John Moore's. Mm, yeah just give me a kind of potted history of how you then got onto the onto the radio (laughs) how I got into radio was I when I was at um uh, Liverpool I used to write a bit and people used to say oh you know really quite good at writing but I just didn't I didn't kind of do much of it and then I um went to work at the Manchester Business School and I just thought well, I went to work at Manchester Business School and I did a lot of things. Um, I always did something that was kind of like um, giving back. So I, I worked for the Prince's Trust as an ambassador. I was, I've volunteered and, um, you know, done various things. And I did all of that. But suddenly thought, you know, I'm really into music and kind of the arts and it's a big thing. And I did used to write before. It's a bit of a waste. I don't want to be one of these people that just think, oh, I've never fulfilled something that was really passionate about. And, you know, that's one thing in you're not really encouraged to do it you know in a white family somebody might have said straight away well I think you should have you know if you've been writing or doing anything that's what you should do so you weren't really encouraged to do that so I um went to work at Sunset Radio just as it was going under really so I went to not to work went to volunteer at Sunset Radio and then that fell down and I just thought you know what just because that's gone down within two months of me starting here I should just carry on so I went to see someone at the BBC in Manchester. Now, bear in mind what I've missed out, that when I was in the sixth form, I had written to Radio Manchester already into the radio and I knew people at Radio 1 and I knew the woman that um, kind of ran the accounts for Radio Manchester and she always let me go in during the holidays and also let me go to meetings. So she kind of, they kind of introduced me. I went to, you know, I went to meetings and planning meetings and stuff like that. And Ivy had always encouraged me and there was another lady from Radio 1. So I just thought, you know what, I did have that kind of insight, let me go back. And I went and said, oh, I just would like to do some research whilst I'm working. And so one of the producers there said, oh, you can do more than research. So that is how I got into radio. So I do my job during the week and then be on the radio at the weekend. And I did that for quite a long time. So Radio Manchester has always been seen as the voice of Manchester, but when you joined 27 years ago, did you feel like it needed to be changed? Yeah, so it wasn't always on a Sunday, you know, as things kind of changed around. Mm. But yeah, I did feel that there were more stories. I'd had had a stint um, when I wasn't working at all in my early 20s where I started to interview people and... I mean, I had done some things this which was quite funny. So when I was at school, me and, and and a couple of other girls, one who went on to be a reporter, we used to sneak into gigs and we used to hide in the toilets. We used to do all these things at Apollo and then we'd get to meet the band right? and they'd never say to us, 
what you're doing. They'd sit down and have proper conversations. We used to drive security mad. So it always did all of that kind of thing. Amazing. And then I went to, um, and then I'd written articles in between that. So I always knew that sometimes a story to, to be told and it wasn't always just with the obvious people. There was, mm-hmm. again, going back to being a tastemaker, there was people up and coming who wanted to tell the story. There was also people who were known, who weren't, you know, didn't want to be asked the obvious questions. And I just felt that needed to be done. And I also felt there was, people do always say what's kind of coming up, but um, I just felt that there was aspects of that missing in terms mm-hmm. of that being covered. And I knew at the time as well um, that there was a change in kind of people that were coming through and I knew that always I was I was good at persuading people to talk. So that's what I felt. And that's what Chris Wormsley as well was saying. He said to me, you know, yeah, that's you've got a valid point. You can come on and do that. And he did say to me at the time and start writing, which I didn't actually do. But he did say, you've got, you know, that's um, it's an important point that you that you're talking about there. Have you felt that, I mean, you've obviously interviewed some amazing people and got some amazing people's stories. So you, people like Idris Elba, um, Lam Cisse, um, Mary J. Blige, do you feel that when you had those conversations with them that you were, be able to, you were able to access a different story perhaps than other people have had? Yeah, I think so. I mean, Lem I knew from before he was famous, really, and that was a, so that's how that came about. But he always just say to me, you've got a different view so he will always speak to me and uh, and I can approach him about different things. But I did, you know, one thing particularly at that time, which, you know, and sometimes people don't notice, like Mary J, for instance, I interviewed a lot. I'd be the only female interviewing her. And sometimes, you know, it's people have a memory and they say, oh, yeah, I interviewed her. But people, even at some of the points, weren't interested or thought she was difficult. And she'd sometimes, she, you know, she'd admit back then she'd be, irritated but she wasn't irritated for 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 no reason she always come on and go oh it's female voice Mm -hmm. you know and then she changed and to the point of you know she told me one of the reasons as well sometimes why she'd kind of like be so upset sometimes on interviews you know we sat down once in London and she had PMT but major you know when you've got it and you've got it for half of the month and she totally mm. came out and revealed everything and said you know I've got to be on medication you know I could go into a rage she said well you know because you've followed me in part of my you've followed me for a lot of my career you've seen me not in the UK you've seen my early gigs I've seen her in St Lucia and she said I feel that you know my kind of part of my story and so she would share that and I think that's kind of why, you know, I'm I'm interested sometimes in not just about, if you're a musician, I'm not just interested in why you like music. I'm interested in what makes you tick, what, you know, what upsets you, what you like. Mm. The same as if you're an actor, you know, I interviewed Idris Elba. The, the Idris Elba, um, the reason that even the interview came about, I went to a event with Spike Lee, where Idris Elba was asking advice because he couldn't break through. So he had been on, he was on the TV every week and he, but he had, couldn't break through. And Spike Lee got a bit annoyed with him for asking a question. And uh, I was there and I said to Idris, do you, know, do you remember that time? And he said, nobody ever believes me when I say about, you know, because he asked for, if he asked for advice about, you know, what, you know, what should, what should we as UK actors do? And 
Idris was like, you know, you're clearly there because that happened. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and he also wanted to talk about his music. And, you know, so it's sometimes when, you know, you kind of understand where somebody's coming from, you're kind of interested and, mm -hmm. and people do kind of want to share that. And I feel that I'm quite lucky now, you know, that people know that I'm interested in them, not just because they're a star, I'm interested in kind of what makes them tick. And so, you know, there are some people who people do say, oh, how come you interview them? But, you know, because when they weren't in favour, they weren't in fashion, I was still interested in speaking to them. And now they are, they remember that. And so they still speak to me now or they get in touch and say, I want to talk to you about what I'm doing now. Just going back to uh, Mary J and you being able to empathise with her as a as a woman, you are a real champion, aren't you, of women in music and, and women of colour in music as well. So um, why is that been... Have you seen... Obviously, well, we know there's not enough representation in the music industry and that's well documented. Who do you feel that you've actually been able to help in that respect? Anybody that we may know? I think it's given a platform sometimes to people who may have been forgotten and sometimes it can be more than momentarily you know uh, in that respect but um, it's really interesting sometimes why people feel that uh, women aren't relevant so I've spoken to musicians and to performers who sometimes you know you feel that they're everybody loves and adores them and and uh, as real kind of like frustration in how they're perceived and and again they're not given all the opportunities that somebody else is and what I started to do was ask the men men are really reliant on these women but they don't speak up for them in the same way and that's what I really really found Mish Paris has said to me you know you always try you always you've always given me opportunities through the years now you would never think that because obviously she's great and we see her all the mm -hmm. time mm -hmm. but it's sometimes you know an opportunity to kind of present something and yes you see her presenting somewhere but it's sometimes about people want to present or do something different that's kind of the the lane it can be you know become friends with the singer pp arnold and for her it'll be playing a song that's not been played on the radio which she's really passionate about so the other week i played a song and she was like you know no one's ever played that and i really love that song and she sent it so it can be those avenues which it kind of means so much because you know, what so many female artists, engineers, producers say, they give a lot to kind of what they're doing. And it sometimes it feels kind of relentless and there's not that recognition. So, and I, and I think that even though we know that artists are, um, or female artists are kind of questioned about the weight and kind of the look, we're now kind of aware of those things. But it's about the blocks that they have and the opportunities that they don't have. And I've spoken to some artists now and they've said to me, you know, we have to take it another level in that, you know, we don't do exhibitions where we're showcasing men anymore because it's often, it's it's just not, we're not recognised enough. So, you know, an example can be, how many female guitarists can you name? Mm. And then... The issue is that there are women who play guitar, but is it mentioned that they can play guitar? Mm. And so if somebody talks about even a guy that strums guitar for a short while. So it's those, that's the kind of conversations is trying to kind of elevate really. 
That's why I've, you know, uh, wherever I can now as well, I push for female musicians. One woman that absolutely did have that platform was, we can't deny the legacy she's left on the city, is Denise Johnson. Mm. And you obviously did a tribute to her just before the new year. She was the voice of so many bands. She made so many incredible uh, tracks, didn't she, that we all know there's in our DNA. What, what do you think was so special about her and why did she stand out so much? Denise was an artist who uh, didn't want to fit into any particular genre of music. She knew that uh, she could sing, whether it was rock or whether it was soul or it was reggae, but she just didn't want to be defined by that. She wanted to sing indie music as much as she wanted to sing soul music and she didn't want to be a black artist that could only sing you know, R&B or soul music. She knew that she had more to give than that. Um, and the thing that, you know, I just can't say how upsetting it is to know that that she did died before the album came out. It's just so, I just found it so upsetting. And, you know, I've had friends who are musicians on the phone, just also, we just found it so upsetting, I have to mm-hmm. say. And and it is the fact that, you know, why did it take, why, why is the support not given to a female musician who's, you know, contributed to so much of Manchester, she was an ambassador for Manchester and its music mm. and she was an ambassador. She was a lover of music, you know, that she couldn't release an album, you know, mm. in in how many years, you know. Mm. Somebody had been singing since she was 15 or 16 yeah. and successfully. It wasn't that, you know, she was successful at it. And that's one thing I found when I even went freelance is that I just didn't understand why people would say it's a hustle and it's a struggle and it really is and... But it's upsetting when, you know, you sit and listen to Denise or somebody's records and it's you love listening to them so much and they've sold so much and then, you know, that that person can't release a, their own solo album. It's just kind of, it's just not right, really. That's how, that's how I feel about it. It's just not right. And she's left a great legacy of work and that's something that we're all really thankful for. My album's just arrived again, that the vinyl's arrived yesterday and she's left a great legacy of work. And, you know, in that special, um, people she'd worked with shared music that hadn't been released or that had been overlooked. And, you know, some of the music's incredible. So, you know, we know that it was a rich, rich body mm. of great music that she put out there. You know, there was nothing that was under par- that was below par, that wasn't quality. Mm. And that's been reflected in people who've got in touch to say that, say, you know, they're very proud that she was a Manchester musician because that's what Manchester's known for, isn't it? Creating great music and culture that's really, um, you know, stellar. And um, Mm. when you listen back to music, you can't say, oh, that was all right, you know. Mm. Talking about legacy, you've created a massive legacy already. There's no doubt about that. And um, a very diverse legacy. But is there anything that's really still on your list that you want to make sure that you achieve? Yes, there is. Um, I um, I do want to document Manchester's history, musical history. And, you know, a lot of musicians, and I know a lot of people are out there doing it, but as more musicians have got in touch with me to say they want my view on it, my eye on it, and I definitely do want to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, just very particularly now, but I don't, you know, I've done a lot of stuff on Manchester's history, Um on no budget or kind of low budget and uh and people have gone off and you know use that as a platform and and you know still miss out the women like myself or you know I've had a lot of people contribute to it and 
and I'd like to do it with a proper foundation and kind of recognition because I have interviewed many people from Manchester or got links to Manchester and to showcase that and I still want to do more about Manchester the reason why I want to do Manchester's history is that um as I say, I know a lot of people in London, a lot of people in Birmingham, and when they want to do a project, it's, you know, it gets a lot of support. I've done projects and archive projects. If I go to London now, supported by record labels, people from the areas that I kind of grew up with, it's supported massively. You know, Mm. I showed a film in Notting Hill. Everyone came in the lunchtime from all the record labels, from, you know, all the parents came, everything. And they really get to document stuff at their art galleries, on film, in festivals. I feel, whether people like it or not, that Manchester is way behind Birmingham and London for doing it. Mm. Um, Manchester was always happy to have something in an art gallery. That was Mm. it, you know. Mm. And I was saying it's not documented on film. And when you look in the archives, it's not documented in film. People approach me now and say, yeah, you've got it. It's on there. No, it isn't. I mean, people, of course, have filmed it. There are a lot of people still with it in their attics. You know, I'm not in denying of that. That happens everywhere. It's a lot's missing. Um, and um, and yes, now people are sharing and telling the stories, but there's a lot of history. You know, the contribution, even the black contribution to Manchester's history going back 200 years still not been documented. Mm. Obviously talking about values then, and, and obviously you said that you, certainly your granddad, um, somebody instilled plenty of those into you. Are there any of the values that we have as a business that kind of really stood out for you? Champions do extra. I think it's always important, isn't it, that kind of sometimes no matter what the task is, if you can, to just to just kind of put in that little more um, into kind of what you're doing to, to create something that gives quality to what you're doing to 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 show people that um you know it's good to 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 give as much as you can where you can and and that just does leave a mark for people it kind of ties into to other things because then it gives you integrity it gives you value and if Mm. you do that I think you feel better about yourself and kind of what you're doing so Mm. champions do extra that's absolutely I can see that that kind of follows the thread of of the way that you live your life so that thank you for that right Karen I'm going to do a quick fire round here for you now so first of all what does Manchester mean to you Manchester to me means um performance music sense of humor as JP Cooper the singer says grace guys (laughs) (laughs) what do you miss most about manchester when you're not here the ease of getting around so it's great to the fact that you know you can go home before well you can go home get ready to just to go out to a to a club or to a venue or to a theater and you can do all that kind of like quite easily it's just really really easy to get around it's not a trek to get around or to move about that's kind of what i always uh, like about it what would you order at the chippy Always mushy peas. <laughs> Just mushy peas. No, mushy peas, cod or haddock, and uh, chunky chips, and sometimes a pot of curry. So, what for you is a track that sums up Manchester? So, I have to pick three. Mm-hmm. So, so, I have to pick three. So, I'm going to pick Sweet Sensation, Sad Sweet Dreamer, the first Manchester black pop band. 
Blue Monday by New Order. The first two are quite obvious choices, but nevertheless, they do me Manchester wherever you hear them in the world. And I have to say, um, J.P. Cooper as well, the album Raised Under Grey Skies, because I'm a huge fan, but I also think that it was pertinent and genius for him to name an album that actually totally summed up Manchester, and it's an incredible album as well. Fantastic. So lastly... As we know, culture everywhere and particularly in Manchester um, has been completely affected by COVID over the past 12 months. Um, It's looking like we might be able to unlock that later this year. So I'm just interested, what are you going to do as soon as you can get out again? I keep thinking what I'm going to (laughs) do. So (laughs) there's a couple of things. Um, Some people who know me, some people who know me know, I do love ice cream. (laughs) I made a film about Italian ice cream. And uh, friends will tell you this, including Miss Collins, uh, I might have to go and get an, an Italian ice cream first. Manchester, the home of Italian ice cream. Yeah. I do kind of keep, I'm not ordering ice cream at home because I keep thinking, no, I want a proper ice cream mm. in a cone and I want mm. to get it from an ice cream van or I need to order an ice cream from Ginger's Comfort Emporium. Have you ever had no, one? Where is <gasps> Where's that? Oh, well, so they have this ice cream van that sometimes pops up in Chorlton outside the bookshop, at the airport, in Levenshume, wherever. But they've also got a location in Affleck's Palace. Homemade ice cream, Chorlton crack. They do marmalade and toast. Um, you know, they do... Um, honest, yeah, oh, just the best ice cream that you could ever, oh ever, God. ever, ever have. So... Uh, Ginger's Comfort Emporium is a great stop in Affleck to kind of like have one of their ice creams and uh, and then the other thing I keep thinking I'm going to go to a gig first because I miss that or am I going to go to the library I love libraries so I love Central Library in Manchester mm. uh, so I do keep to and fro in thinking what am I going to do first but it might have to be ice cream oh right well I'm, and it might have to be ice cream for me now you sold it to me <laughs> So, Karen, thanks so much for joining me on We Built This City. Um, you said to me beforehand that you feel that you've done much and achieved much, but you've not got the bank balance to reflect it. And so many guests on We Built This City do what they do for love and not for money. And you're definitely one of those people who has um, who will leave our city and everything you commit to in a much better place than when you found it. And so, and I thank you for that. And it's been fantastic speaking to you today. So thanks so much. Thank you. Karen Bay helped to build this city by giving a platform to people and their stories, by doing it all for the love, not the money, by hiding in the toilets at the Apollo and getting into gigs for free. We Built This City is out every Thursday when you'll hear from another incredible Greater Mancunian. If you want to find more out about Roland Dransel PR and you'd like some help in creating your legacy, please head to rdpr.co.uk for more information or give us a call on the same number we've had for 24 years, 0161 236 1122. Thank you and see you next time.